Hello, and welcome to the Andwise Podcast. We are delighted to have you here spending some time with us. Andwise is a technology platform that aims to empower medical students, trainees, and early career physicians navigate the complex financial journey that we all find ourselves on as we aim to help others. Thanks for joining us. Cheers. Thanks, everyone, for joining us on the Endwise podcast. We have another exciting episode. We have Dr. Cicchini with me today. Sherilyn, thank you so much for joining and making time for us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to chat with you. You are one of our medical advisory board members at Andwise. You are a pediatrician and you've transitioned to non-clinical work as a writer, amongst other things. I can never do anyone's biography justice. When you introduce yourself to people, can you tell us your story briefly? Yes, definitely. And that's right. I'm a pediatrician by training. I was on the straight arrow path in clinical medicine from Jefferson to Children's National for my residency training. And toward the end of residency, found myself doing a lot of side gigs, having a hand in contributing cases to platforms like Human DX, Figure One, contributing articles for Doximity, Kevin MD, and launching my own blog. And thought, wow, I'm having so much fun doing all of this creative work. And I'm spending little to no time with my actual patients. I'm spending the majority behind a screen charting or ordering labs or all of my time on the phone. That was essentially the moment when I decided I'm going to look for something that marries my interests, right? My background in medicine, the training that I've done in pediatrics, communication. My research actually was on patient-physician communication in residency and my renewed love and interest in writing. And that's essentially what brought me to what I'm doing now, which is health communications, public relations, essentially supporting companies in biotech and biopharma reach their audiences, including other providers, with key messages about what they're developing, whether it's a drug or something of that nature. That's awesome. It's so hard to make the leap from clinical medicine into other areas, but Physicians have so many skills that are applicable in so many different areas. That's great that you were able to do that. Yes. I would say that it was probably one of the scariest decisions that I've ever made. And I would tell others who are thinking about it or considering it that it is completely normal to feel fearful. I think that it would be strange to just leap out of clinical medicine after you've spent so much time and energy and money for the training, the education, the background, right? It would be strange to just wake up and say, okay, I'm going to leave this career and have no stress or, or no worries about it. I would tell others it's a totally natural feeling and it doesn't go away right away either. It'll sit with you after you've made that leap for some time. And then slowly, as you start to get your footing and discover your other passions and where you can learn and apply all of that education and learning so it doesn't feel like it went to waste, then slowly it starts to naturally feel much smaller. Yeah. Did you have anyone around you when you were thinking about this transition that had done similar things? Or did you approach people on 
say LinkedIn or Twitter or X or whatever, reach out to them? Or how did you start doing some background investigation? Or did you do any? Or some people just travel their own path and don't worry about what others have done before them. What Do you remember? What, I do. I do remember. I had friends who had mentioned dropoutclub.com, actually. Many of them were also in medical school and considering either an MBA or an alternate career course. And they had mentioned this website. In my moments of uh, doubt or when I started to explore what else was out there, I thought to myself, oh, I have to go back and check out that website, dropoutclub.com. It's basically purpose built for physicians or scientists who are looking to leave academia or leave their clinical roles or maybe explore something part time, for example. I went there and that actually was how I found my job. I think uh, a key piece of that transition was that the founder and CEO there is also an MD who left clinical medicine, trained in anesthesiology, and was no longer practicing. It started to show me, it was the beginning of seeing that, oh, there are other physicians who leave clinical medicine and start doing something totally different and have found a lot of reward in that nonlinear path. So I would say the combination of having him there as a mentor and having looked at all these job listings and realizing, okay, there's a whole universe out there built by physicians who are also no longer practicing medicine. It started to feel less unnatural to me, but it's hard to find those people. I think that most physicians actually who stop practicing for whatever reason, feel a sense of shame or guilt and they're not often going to go out there and say, okay, I totally stopped practicing. I'm going to share my story with the world. For whatever reason, it felt like those people, even if they were successful and fulfilled, weren't out there telling their story as often as the doctors who are practicing and who are fulfilled by what I'm doing in my day-to-day -day clinical role. I did have to search a little bit more for those people, but as I was looking Again, through those networks, like you mentioned, Doximity is a great example. Even American Medical Women's Associations or some of those professional societies. Yeah, there are fewer physicians who, or it feels like maybe there are fewer physicians who aren't practicing, but they do exist. And some of them have carved out some of the most exciting careers that you wouldn't even realize is doable unless you start talking to them. So networking is certainly key, but at the beginning, it was really just that job board and a couple other factors, including the mentor, when I made that switch that encouraged me to hang around long enough and keep exploring. Yeah. Becoming a physician is just the, like the longest path ever. And it's so structured, like you got to take... MCATs and courses and this and that. And then when you're in school, you're taking board exams and the USMLEs or the other equivalents for DOs. Um, so changing careers to non-clinical work, it feels very unsettling sometimes because there's no quote unquote right path, right? It's, that um, is so true. Yes, there is no right path, but I think that's a huge lesson that we should all remember the, the non-linear, the non-traditional paths, they're out there. They exist and they 
can lead you to so many incredible opportunities, so many fantastic people and mentors that you wouldn't otherwise have the opportunity to interact with if you stayed on that very linear path that is ingrained in all of us from the time that we decide, okay, we're going to major in biology or pre-med. I mean, it's drilled into you. Okay, the next step from here, and as you said, with the standardized tests is medical school. And the next step from there is residency. And you have to be doing XYZ amount of research. And then from there, oftentimes it's, you're going to go to fellowship. It really feels like your whole path is mapped out for you from the second that you start to even think that you want to become a doctor. And I, I think that mindset is really limiting in a lot of ways. Absolutely. I think you mentioned fear earlier. Everyone has it. It's very natural. But I think the the more we realize that thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people have gone before us on a similar path, we just might not have heard about it. And now with social media and professional networking sites and stuff, it's becoming a little bit more visible. But again, it's sometimes the onus is on us to discover those people, right? And get inspired from them or learn something, whatever we can. Absolutely. And my hope is that even in us having this conversation and others having conversations, it starts to become more apparent that this type of path exists, that it's available to physicians or trainees. And you can really make a change at any part of your journey, which I also think isn't talked about nearly enough. So many people start residency in one specialty and they end up deciding, okay, this isn't for me and they switch. But when you're in the process of applying for a residency or you're in medical school, that isn't really talked about. You feel like you're entering this binding agreement that you have to stick to, even if you're finding that it's not rewarding for you or you're really not that interested in it. And and that shouldn't be the case. We should be having conversations. If you're truly unhappy as a physician or you're burnt out or you're feeling like, wow, I did all of this and I'm not even enjoying my day-to-day life, that is changeable. You can actually go and modify that. You can change your specialty. You can change what you're doing day-to-day. There really aren't any rules, but for some reason, we feel like there are. Yeah, absolutely. I actually changed specialties. Did you know that? I did know that. Yeah, that was like incredibly uncomfortable. People looked at me like I had three heads. My family thought I was insane. There's like this sunk cost fallacy as well, where people and yourself, you feel this internal pressure where people around you will be like, oh, you invested so much time. Like I personally took a year off to do research at the National Institutes of Health. And then I'd done my whole PGY2, my second year in residency in ophthalmology. And people were like, this is crazy. Like, why would you do that? But again, like similar to seeking out non-clinical jobs, when the year I changed, there were three other people, one from anesthesia, one from ENT, one from radiology that had changed. And no one ever talks about it because 10 years from that point, no one even thinks about it. Your life is your life. I know. And I would say too, what often isn't talked about either is that it's okay to re-enter clinical medicine after a period away from it. And, and there's no right way to practice medicine. It really depends on a person's goals, what brings meaning to their life. And those variables are likely to change throughout a person's life. So what they value in their 20s may no longer be important to them in their 30s or 40s or beyond. I think it's important to remember that it's okay to shape and change 
your career to make it valuable for yourself based on your personal needs at a particular point in time. You don't have to be doing something that you think is going to make you happy 20 years from now if it's not making you happy right now. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's funny you said that. I was just thinking this the other day. I was talking to some third-year medical student, and I was telling them that it's actually impossible to imagine your life in your 40s when you're in your 20s. It sounds cliche, but for some reason, again, because we take this like very structured path, I, I thought I could, but like literally everything has changed in my life. I thought I would stay in Manhattan forever, no kids. Now I live in the suburbs of New Jersey in the middle of nowhere. I have three kids and it's like stuff changes and you're absolutely right. Like your interests change, your, sometimes your stamina changes. I could work night shifts forever before and it wouldn't affect me and I felt healthy. And now I work a night shift once in a blue moon and I feel terrible the next day. I'm like kicking myself about why I picked that shift up. Yeah, I um, couldn't agree with you more. I am in my almost mid thirties and I wouldn't have described my life as it is now to anyone had they asked me even five or 10 years ago. I really pictured something that looked very different and then almost immediately realized along this journey that, okay, what I pictured for myself being in a high volume, high acuity academic hospital does not fulfill me. It is not what I'm interested in doing. And I applaud all of the people who are doing it um, because I know the amount of stamina it takes, like you said, and grit. And it's just not for me, at least not right now even. But yeah, I think having that mindset and I wish I, I could go out to all of the med students and, and tell them this, but just having that flexibility and losing that rigidness that's so ingrained in us, I think is so important. I know I've said this already, but I just cannot emphasize it enough. I just think that your approach to learning and exploring and looking at those other opportunities it's so important. And yes, it's scary, but I would say just go for it. If you like something and it's different, then why not try it? You can always change it again. Absolutely. Since Andwise is about financial wellness and optimizing our financial lives, do you remember like when you were in medical school or in residency or afterwards, did you have any like discussions or any mentorship or anyone about the nuts and bolts of adulting? quote unquote, like not related to being a good doctor or everything like outside of that. Do you remember? Did you have any discussions or guidance? I had no one. <laughs> Are you, any, anyone in your family a doctor? No. So that was no. a huge difference. I am the first in my family to become a doctor. I had a lot of friends whose parents were physicians. So I did actually rely on them often with questions that I have. So tip rely on your friends' networks. If you don't have any within your immediate family, I did that often. But as far as financial mentorship, no. I remember sitting down with someone in, gosh, the financial department at Jefferson toward the end of my medical school training. And she was telling me essentially, or trying to tell me the roadmap that I should follow for all these loans. And I actually wrote about my debt for doximity, and it caused a lot of controversial reactions. <laughs> but yeah, I still carry a hefty 
debt. Uh, I owe a, a large chunk of money back to the government. And I really didn't have any resources telling me how to manage that um, as far as consolidating it, if that was useful. Over time, I started to have additional friends who had gone out and had more resources available to them, I would say, when it came to finances. So I would start to pick their brains a little bit more, right? Should I be just paying the monthly amount, the lowest monthly amount over time and waiting for forgiveness? Or should I be avalanche paying off certain loans and et cetera? So they helped me probably the most, but I still don't feel like I have a resource with all of that information that's easy to understand in one place. And that's why I'm so excited about NWISE because I think that there's significant need. The medical schools, residency programs do not provide you with any sense of formal training. And I had to rely mostly on informal networking and contacts that I had, but not everyone even has that. So to have a central repository of information and trusted resources when it comes to finances and managing wealth as a physician, I think it's so valuable. Yeah. I graduated with $170,000 worth of loans. It sounds like it was about half of yours looking at your OpMed article. But I also remember the takeaways I got from my medical school financial aid office were basically like, don't get yourself into credit card debt. Okay, check. I didn't do that. And get yourself on an income-based repayment plan. But aside from that, I don't think I had any awareness about public service loan forgiveness programs. I didn't have any awareness of what it meant to just make the bare minimum payments. And despite being a objectively or, or supposedly intelligent person getting through medical school exams, I also don't think I understood like compound interest that well. Because, <laughs> Me either. <laughs> because my final year of residency, I was in a really high cost of living area in Manhattan. And I voluntarily put my student loans on forbearance because I thought, hey, I'll save some money and get a holiday. Uh, I wanted to go traveling to Morocco and Italy, two trips that year. But had I known that the interest accumulated, not just that one year, but basically forever, right? Yeah. Maybe I would have budgeted better the previous three years. But anyway, that's in the past. There's just so many little tweaks that I wish I had made. Like an, another one that I talk about constantly is like, besides my not having a good student loan repayment strategy, ultimately it, it ended up taking me like nine and a half years to pay off. I didn't even qualify for public service loan forgiveness. Besides student debt, another thing I talk about is like investing in stuff that I didn't understand. One year I got a small hospitalist bonus and I put it into like cryptocurrency and the following year it basically went to zero. And looking back now, I'm like, oh my God, why did I do that? It's literally something that I did not understand at all. And I see these discussions online, certain physicians and stuff have lost really incredible amounts of money where I'm like, oh my God, that would be like a lifetime of savings for me. But because they're in very high paying specialties, like surgical specialties or something, it's a couple of years for them. But do you, besides your student loan sort of strategy, is there any other things that come to mind that you wish you had learned about earlier or you're still learning? Right yes, now? definitely. One, I think when you become a resident, it's exciting and you're thinking, wow, I'm making a paycheck and this is really fun and I'm an adult. And so I definitely wasn't budgeting either for all of residency. It was, okay, I have a paycheck. I can afford this, but I'm not 
I wasn't really thinking about saving long term at all. And I think, too, partially just because no one along the way says that you should be doing that. I wish that I had that framework, that mindset much earlier. I think I could have been already saving during those three years of training versus kind of just spending what I was making. And then I would say that the 401k, the hospital matched it. And I am so lucky that one of the older residents just one day happened to sit down with me, take out my laptop and say, oh yeah, you definitely need to set this up. Let me show you how to do it. And she was literally filling out all the information for me. And had she not done that on that day, I think I would have gone all three years without the 401k happening. So that's mind blowing to me. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome that you did that though. So you still had the savings rate. If residents make 50 to 70,000, you still put away like 10 to 14 or whatever the 401k was that year. Exactly. And they matched it. It was a no brainer to be doing it. But to someone like me, I didn't even really understand what it meant. I certainly wasn't thinking about retirement. I mean, who's thinking about retirement when you're that young? <laughs> yeah. And then like, I, I've been asking all the guests, like your overall global approach right now, are you someone that like self-manages everything at your own accounts, like something like Vanguard or F Fidelity or something? Or did you find like a, a financial advisor or a wealth manager? What have you been doing? Like broad strokes? Yes, I'm self-managing, as you mentioned, monitor everything through Fidelity. I think eventually, though, it would make sense to find a financial advisor in some capacity just because I do think that it's a weakness for me. Yes, I've learned a lot, and I'm certainly way more skilled than I was in my 20s, but it's something, too, that you can be learning constantly. It's not static. You don't just learn it and it stays the same. So that fluidity, I think having an advisor would be useful. But for now, I feel confident enough that I can self-manage. And I would say for most people, if they feel like they've got a good handle on it, great. But if not, just having an introductory meeting or call with someone who's more knowledgeable, that can't hurt. That's always my mindset when it comes to something that okay, I know enough to be dangerous, but not enough to be well-versed or an expert by any means. I'm so open to talking to others and learning from their experiences. I just soak it up like a sponge. And I think that applies to everything, financial health included. Yeah, no, absolutely. I've been self-managing myself as well, but interestingly, I jumped on a Vanguard advisory services call with my dad, because he's in his 70s now. Vanguard Personal Advisory Services, they basically take your Vanguard account, they manage it for you, they tell you the allocation, and it's like very reasonable. It's like 0.3% fees per year, which is like a third of what most people charge. Mm -hmm. But it was like interesting listening to the allocations they recommend. Vanguard was saying based on like their 100 years of testing, they recommend like everyone have 15 or 20% in international funds. And I like nearly fell off my chair because like young, I'm young-ish. I'm not as young as you, but people like look at U.S. companies right now. And I'm like, why would I ever invest in international? Because it's done horribly the last 10 years. That's just like one time point when you're investing for retirement and stuff. You really have to think about like long term and not just like the the really good period we've had the last decade or so. 
Yes, exactly. And that's the frame of reference that I feel like I was completely missing as a young student coming out of medical school, entering residency. I mean, you're just not planning that far ahead. So my advice to all of those newly graduated uh, folks would be think about it because it does actually make a difference. You can start saving so much earlier and in a meaningful way if you're thoughtful about it. So that's one lesson that I certainly learned. And if I could go back in time and do it over again, I would probably have one of those budget trackers and actually think about, okay, how much am I saving month over month and year to year? And, and how can I invest this so that it grows exponentially? But I definitely didn't think about it at all. I was mostly thinking, how can I make it from my one 24 hour shift to the next one because it's exhausting and you're spending all of your time and energy on just doing the demands of being a resident. You, you just reminded me actually for anyone that actually wants to talk to a financial advisor for free with no obligations, Handwise has our educational chief, Tanya Frias. She has 20 years experience uh, and she's a certified financial planner. Anyone's welcome to book a call with her. And we don't sell any services. So it's literally just pick our brain for whatever you want. So. Yeah, it couldn't be better. That's the type of conversation that I find is so meaningful when it's not even transactional. You can just do a lot of learning. How can you get something better than that? Yeah. Are there other professionals that you've had to employ or find just to help you now that you've transitioned from resident to working being an adult, for instance, once I had kids, I got a lawyer to make up our estate plan and our will. I've been working with an accountant for a couple of years because my wife owns her dermatology practice. So the accountant has to do our books and our taxes. Are there other professionals that you use or do you do stuff yourself? No other professionals yet, but I think that'll change over time. And it's good to start thinking about that earlier, right? Even just recently, I was having a conversation about wills and, and planning and writing and how people should be doing that much earlier than I think they typically do for all sorts of reasons, right? Who wants to sit down and, and put something together like that? It can feel very morbid, but I think it's so important because without it, people don't have that information, the earlier you put it together, the better you can think about it. Think about who you'd have to bring in, like lawyers or accountants ahead of time. I'm not quite there yet, but I imagine I will be. I think as you travel through the decade, that's the 30s, a couple of things start to shift and priorities change a little bit, as I was mentioning earlier. What's important to you across all the decades totally morphs. What I was thinking about in my mid-20s is nothing close to what I'm thinking about now in my almost mid-30s. Yeah, no, I've been there. So I, I totally <laughs> get it. So do you do your own taxes, your tax return, like on TurboTax or something? Or? I do. I do. I do oh, my own wow. still TurboTax. Impressive. Uh, That's great. Yeah. I think it's I think it's a really good activity, actually, for people just to learn about the types of stuff that exists. Everyone gets like a standard deduction, but if you have certain types of income, like 1099 income, there's certain tax deductions that you can take that you might be able to itemize and do better than the standard deduction. 
Yes. I did not realize that 1099 was even a thing. And then I started doing a lot more of the consultant type of work and had all of these additional forms coming to me. And I remember saying to myself, oh my goodness, what are all of these? And having to navigate that and figure it out. But yeah, it's a whole different world, but it's all opportunity too, is, is how I look at it. But so far I've been able to manage the taxes. I think that eventually that may change. So we'll see. I have a feeling that I'll probably need to bring in some extra resources at some point, but yeah. But it, I'll use tax law I can. <laughs> no, that's great. And it's funny, even when you hire people to do stuff, when you outsource it, it, you need to have some baseline level of knowledge because mistakes get made all the time. Mm -hmm. Even if you have the best accountant ever, people miss stuff. They're human and you, you need to double check everything similar to when you're signing off on patient charts or whatever. So you need to have some baseline knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. That just made me think of how fatigued I was in residency and how triple checking, quadruple checking some things even still weren't. So yeah, everyone's human. Mistakes happen. Yeah. We're coming up on time in a couple of minutes, but do you have any other topics you want to cover related to career or financial wellness or anything else that comes to mind that you'd think that someone like a decade behind you in their career trajectory would benefit from? I would just reiterate what I said earlier and that a career path in healthcare does not have to be linear and that so many opportunities are afforded to physicians and other healthcare providers, right, outside of physicians based on personal experiences and passions and that networking is extremely valuable, as I mentioned earlier, and even if a person's career path doesn't look identical to yours, learning from them about the changes that they made or what they prioritized and why can be so helpful later as you shape your own path. I think that's the, the narrative that's super important to me. I will scream it from the rooftops and I hope that it helps people who are exploring other opportunities, both clinical and non-clinical. I hope it inspires them. Yeah, it definitely will. Thank you so much for your time. And if people want to connect with you, what's the best place to find you? Is it your website? Or? It's best places, probably Instagram. So that's Instagram.com slash Dr. Sherilyn Cicchini. And you can also find me on LinkedIn. Okay, we'll link to both of your, both of those resources in the show notes. Awesome. Thank you again for your time. Really appreciate it. And yeah, it was all, so awesome to learn about your journey. Thanks. Thank you for your time and for the, the conversation. It was great. Bye-bye.